Peace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. I want to thank you all for joining me this week. Uh, today is the 13th of March, 2022, and if you forgot, I know you woke up late, today is Spring Forward. So I hope you remember to spring forward. Um... It's not enjoyable to lose an hour's worth of sleep, so I also hope you got to go to sleep an hour earlier. Um, if not, if you are one of the um, many, many, many who did not get to sleep in, very sorry, and I hope you do get to rest today. I am really excited. We've got a great uh, podcast today. We've got all 30 words, so thrilled about that. Um, we are going to be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 two times today. And for those of you who are new, you may be wondering, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you, and we read from two different encyclopedias. Our main source is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and the second source is the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And sometimes we go back and forth between both encyclopedias. And other times uh, we're not in the Encyclopedia Americana at all. And sometimes just a little sprinkling like today. Um, before I forget, uh, I did update my Teespring store for 20% off. So if you are interested in a t-shirt, a mug, I believe I also have some shot glasses on there. It says, I read encyclopedias for fun. You can get 20% off until April 24th, 2022. Now I'm really excited. Uh, the reason I decided to go ahead and uh, give you a percentage off is because I love spring. And I hope you love spring too. But the code is Mandy20, and that's my name, M-A-N-D-Y-2-0, and the description and link are in the description below, <laughs> or the, the um, you know, Mandy20 and the link for my Teespring store um, are both in the description below. So if you're driving, um, you know, you'll want to write it down later. It'll still be there. <laughs> Right, and since this is March, this is the second Sunday of March, we do have a quote of the month, and it is by a German humorist by Jean Paul Richter, and I love it because it has to do with spring. He said, Stately spring, whose robe folds are valleys, whose breast bouquet is gardens, and whose blush in a vernal evening. So let me just repeat that. Stately spring whose robe folds are valleys, whose breast bouquet is gardens, and whose blush in a vernal evening. So there we go. <laughs> All right, and I know you're not here to uh, listen to quotes or listen to me ramble on about my day or anything. Um, so let's get on with the words. Last week we ended with alluvium, which was a pretty cool word. If you don't uh, remember what that word is, you can go back um, to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and scroll down to Season 1, Episode 55, or S1 forward slash E55, and you can click the link there to listen to it. Uh, or um, you can go to, to my directly to my podcast link from theoaktreejourneys.com and click on any, pod any podcast that you want. Okay, and our first set of five... Entries are Allward, Walter Seymour, Ali, Aligur, Alil, and Alma. So we will start with Allward, Walter Seymour from the, Amer the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And it would help if I had the right one in front of me, wouldn't it? Okay. So we have Walter Seymour Allward. He was a Canadian sculptor born in Toronto, Ontario, November 18th of 1876. He was educated at Dufferin School, Toronto. He served five years in, in an architect's office and at 20 turned his attention to sculpture in a way of producing figure work for architectural purposes. This he continued for only a short time when he received his first commission for the figure of peace for the Northwest Rebellion Monument in Queen's Park, Toronto. 
Following this, he executed busts of Lord Tennyson, Sir Charles Tupper, Sir Wilfrid Laurel, and other prominent persons, mostly for the art gallery of the Toronto Provincial Museum. Important works from his hand were the statue of Governor John G. Simcoe and that of Sir Oliver Moat, both in Queen's Park, Toronto, the Nicholas Flood Devin Monument in Ottawa, and the South African Memorial, the latter being among the finest in British America. Later works include the John Sanfield MacDonald statue in Toronto, the La Fontaine Memorial on Capitol Hill, Ottawa, and the Alexander Graham Bell Memorial at Brantford, Ontario, and the Vimy Memor Memorial. I wonder if any of those statues are still standing today. That'd be really cool. If you know, uh, or if you, uh, if you know, uh, let me know. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select contact, and let me know. Uh, or if you don't know, and you want me to do some research and perhaps put it in a bonus podcast, uh, let me know that too. Uh, you can go to my contact page again at theoaktreejourneys.com or you can email me directly at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Again, both of those are in the description below. And our second entry is alley, which is a verb, or I'm sorry, a, a lie, a lie, um, which is a verb to bind to something, to unite as families by marriage, to bind together in friendship as states with states, noun one that is allied, a confederate, allies, noun plural, countries or persons united by treaty or agreement, confederates, allying, allied, alliance, noun union, confederacy, association. And number three, Alger. So Alger, a fort in the district of the same name in India. Latitude 27 degrees 56 feet north, longitude 78 degrees 8 feet east, on the route between Agra and De Delhi, being 55 miles from the former and 74 from the latter. Partly to this commanding situation and partly to the strength derived from its surrounding marshes, it owes any importance that it possesses. It was stormed by the British in 1803, being then the principal depot of the French party in the Doab, an exploit of sufficient consequence to be commemorated by a medal in 1851. But within six years after 1851, it became the arena of a still more desperate struggle. Ten days after the outbreak at Marut, the native troops and garrison mutinied. Fortunately, the Europeans escaped with comparatively little sacrifice of life, but the temporary loss of the place almost cut off the communications between the southeast and the northwest. And the district of Algar in the northwest province has 1,955 square miles, and the population in 1891 was 1,043,202. And entry number four, Alil, noun, an alcohol radical, C3H5 obtained principally as sulfide from garlic. Its combinations have very offensive odor. I would say so if it's from garlic. Allyl sulfide is the oil of garlic. The first compound discovered was iodide of allyl, which was obtained by Berthelot. Discovered was iodide of allyl, which was obtained by Berthelot. Okay. Sorry, that was... um. That was a repeat. That was not me repeating. Um, that was a, a re repeated partial sentence in the book. Okay, so it was obtained by Berthelot and DeLuca in 1854. Two years later, they isolated Alil, and shortly afterwards, Wortham demonstrated its existence in the oils of mustard and garlic. See, garlic, comma, oil of. That is definitely not an oil I would want to be around. <laughs> Our fifth entry before break is Alma. Alma, a river in the Crimea, rising at the foot of the Tachidir Dog and flowing westward, westward into the Bay of Kalmita, about halfway between Herpatoria and Sebastopol, on the steep banks of this stream, through the channel of which the British troops waded amid a shower of bullets 
A brilliant victory was won on the 20th of September, 1854, by the Allied armies of Britain and France under Lord Raglan and Marshal St. Arnaud over the Russian army commanded by Prince Menchikov. And uh, let that seep in for just a minute while we go on break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Alma Alta, Almax, Almada, Almaden or Almaden del Azog, and then Almagest. And we want to start with entry number six, Alma Alta, in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this will be the last entry from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for this week. Alma Ata, city USSR, formerly Vierne, the capital of the Kazakh Soviet Republic and the Alma Ata Oblast of Kazakhstan. The city is located in East Central Asia on the Turkestan Siberian Railway near the Sinkin frontier. It is the terminus of a highway across Sinkin to China and also of Chinese Soviet Airways to Chongqing. The city's name means Father of Apples, and it is the center of a fruit-growing area in the foothills of the Altea Mountains with abundant water from mountain streams. Fruit and vegetable canning are the main industries, and the city is the cultural center of Kazakhstan. It was founded in 1854 as a czarist military post. Population in 1946 was about 300,000. And let's move on to entry number seven, Almax. So Almax, that's not Almanac. I'm not saying Almanac incorrectly. Uh, it's Almax. Uh, we will have Almanac later, though. Um, but entry number seven is Almax. And let's go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So Almax was a suit of assembly rooms in King Street, St. James, London, Built in 1765 by Almack, a tavern keeper who, it is said, was originally a poor Scottish Highlander named McCall. As a pre preparatory step into rising into, into importance in London, he inverted the syllables of his name. They are now generally called Willis's Rooms from the name of the present proprietor. I'm sure not present anymore, but... <laughs> The name of Almax is chiefly associated with the balls that have, since the opening of the rooms, been held there under the management of a committee of ladies of high rank, and has become synonymous with aristocratic exclusiveness. The rooms are also much used for dinners and concerts. That sounds like fun. I wonder if they're still used, if they're still in existence. Who owns them now? It's pretty cool. And entry number eight, Almada. A town of Portugal, province of Estremadura, on the south bank of the Tagus, opposite Lisbon, and distant from it less than two miles, there is frequent stream steam communication with Lisbon. Almada is built upon a height from the summit of which, above the town, there is a magnificent view of Lisbon and the Tagus. Almada has a strong castle on a rock. The surrounding country is well cultivated. It has long been celebrated for its figs. Ooh, I like figs. Near it, near it is the gold mine of Edessa. The population, and remember this is early 1900s, was 5,500. And entry number nine, Almaden, or Almaden del Azog, is a town in Spain, 50 miles southwest of Ciudad Real. The Cisapania Cidabrics of the Romans. It is situated in the chain of the Sierra Morena. The population is 8,000, or was 8,000. It is famous for its exceedingly rich quicksilver mines, producing annually about 2 million pounds. Wow, that's a lot. These mines were worked by the ancient Iberians, afterwards by the Romans. They were rented by the Fugers of Augsburg in the 16th century, but were taken under the care of the Spanish government in 1645. 
Some years since, the firm of Rothschild undertook the working of these mines. There is a school of mines in the place. And number 10. Wow. <laughs> so we just moved right along. I don't really have very many stories for you today. Um, not much has been going on. Um, and it's been, the weather's just been insane. So it's been cold and, and rainy and warm and hot. So, well, it was warm and hot and then it turned cold and rainy. And, uh, so not much, not much really going on. Just, uh, just working and all that. But, um, let's go on to entry number 10 before break. Almagest, which is a name given by the Arabs to the great work of Ptolemy the Astronomer. So, and that was Almagest. And if you want to know how to spell any of these words, um, just visit my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. Select Encyclopedia Challenge. And you can scroll all the way to the bottom or just do a search for S1 forward slash E56. And it'll take you to the word list for this week. And you can scroll around and look at the previous words and click on links. Um, where I don't have links, you just click on the picture and it'll take you to the podcast. But all right, with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Almagro, Almagro, comma, Diego D, Almalie or Amelie, and <laughs> the differences in the spelling. And then we have Alma Mater, Almamon or Al-Mamon, comma, Abdul, uh, not Abdul, <laughs> Abul, Abbas, Abdallah. Okay. And with that, let's go to entry number 11. If I can find it, I lost it. Ah, oh, here we go. Almagro, town of New Castile, Spain, province of Ciudad Real, 13 miles east, southeast from Ciudad Real. It is on a high arid plain, but is very well built and with wide paved streets, a fine square, and a public walk lined with trees. Its most noteworthy building is an old church of beautiful architecture. It is a place of greater activity than most Spanish towns, and its whole appearance indicates prosperity. Brandy, soap, and earthenware are manufactured, and lace making gives employment to about 8,000 women in Almagro and the neighboring villages. The surrounding country is celebrated for its mules. There are two great annual fairs at which mules and lace are sold. The population is about, or was about, 14,000. It's probably a lot more now. Entry number 12. Uh, Before I go on to entry number 12, I do have uh, a request for all of my listeners out there. Uh, If you are new, um, this request is for you too. Uh, To my regular and new listeners, um, please pray for me. I've uh, made a huge decision, and it goes into effect tomorrow. Uh, The decision, actually, most people did not believe, and and they still don't believe. In fact, I was told by a friend that um, everyone thinks it's a prank, uh, because I am known as the prankster, apparently, at work, and... Even though I haven't seen most of them in a few years, um, to play pranks on them, um, they still know me as the prankster. I, I played <laughs> kind of a, a mean prank on uh, on one of my friends who happened to be a manager one uh, one year, and uh, I put "Happy 50th Birthday" everywhere, and she wasn't 50. She's not even 50 yet, but uh, black balloons everywhere and stuff, and. Um, so even she thinks that this is a prank, but it's a huge, huge step for me. So I won't go into any details because it's not officially in effect until tomorrow. Um, so just please pray for my decision and uh, and my future. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, very excited, but you you never know. The future is a little a little scary out there. And uh, while we're while we're praying, please pray uh, for the Ukrainians and and the Russians um, people. Are dying. We are made in the image of God, and and we don't want we don't want to kill one another. You know, we're we're made in the image of God. Anyway, thank you so much uh, for your prayers, and let's go ahead and move on to 
Entry number 12, Almagro, Diego de, or Diego de Almagro. He lived from 1475 to 1538. He was a Spanish conquistador or adventurer. Man, I have not heard the word conquistador in a very long time. That's pretty cool. I love that word. You can say it in your car. No one's going to judge you. Conquistador. In the conquest of South America, a foundling who derived his name from the town near which he was found, with many other adventurers, he went, as was common in those days, to seek his fortune in the new world which Columbus had opened. There be amassed wealth by plunder and became one of the most prominent persons in the new colony of Darien when he was persuaded to join Pizarro in his attack on Peru. The undertaking had astonishing success. He was now appointed in the absence of Pizarro, who had returned to Spain with rich presence, governor of the conquered country, and received permission from the Spanish court to conquer for himself a special province south of the territory subdued by Pizarro. In 1534, therefore, he marched on Chile, penetrated deeply into the land, and returned in 1536, just when the Peruvian had flown to arms under their young Inca, Mungu Capa, and shut up the Spaniards in Cusco and Lima. As these towns lay south of Pizarro's district, they were claimed by Almagro. He dispersed the Peruvian army before Cusco, and advanced with his forces against Lima, hoping to make himself sole master of the country. But the crafty Pizarro contrived, by means of a truce, to gain time for collecting his forces. In a desperate engagement near Cusco, in 1538, April 6th, he was defeated and taken prisoner. He was condemned to death, and on the 26th of the same month, he was strangled in prison and his corpse beheaded in the marketplace of Cusco. His son, Diego de Almagro, gathered together several hundred of his father's followers, stormed the palace of Pizarro, whom he assassinated in 1541. He then proclaimed himself Captain General of Peru, but the friends of the murdered governor resisting his claims, Baca de Castro, was sent out from Spain as supreme arbiter to quell disturbances. Diego was now requested to submit, and on his refusing, was attacked by the troops of Baca when the bloodiest battle took place that had ever been known in America in 1542. Diago, having been defeated and taken prisoner, was put to death with 40 of his companions. Oh, goodness. And uh, entry number 13, Alma Lee, a large town of Asiatic Turkey in the Vilayet of Konya. It is situated on the river Myra, about 25 miles from the sea, and is frequented by European merchants from Smyrna, etc., who purchase the various products of the place. Amelie has numerous mills propelled by water, tan yards, dye works, and factories. The inhabitants are very industrious, and everywhere may be seen indications of their prosperity in the clean and comfortable houses, neat apparel, excellent roads, fences, bridges, etc., Amelie is built on a, in a picturesque valley at the edge of a large plateau, 5,000 feet above the sea, and is embosomed in gardens which, with the minarets and lofty poplars interspersed through the town, give it a striking appearance. The population was said to be around 12,000. And our 14th entry is Alma Mater. A name applied by one to the university or college at which he has studied. The word alma, nourishing, sustaining, or kind, was applied by the Latin authors to such of the deities as were friendly to men, Ceres, Venus, etc., and also to the earth, the light, the day, wine, and the soil. In entry number 15 before break, Al-Maman, Abul Abbas Abdallah, or Abul Abbas Abdallah al-Mamun, lived from 786 to 833. He was a renowned caliph of the Abbasids, son of Haran al-Rashid. Haran was succeeded by his son Alman as caliph of Baghdad. Al-Mamun was dissatisfied with his treatment, and a struggle arose between the brothers which lasted for five years. 
Amun was slain and was succeeded by Almamun in 813, October 4th. The early years of his reign were disturbed by factions and revolts, but by his energetic and prudent measures, he succeeded in bringing about a period of peace. He now devoted himself to the cultivation of science and literature throughout his empire and made Baghdad the center of learning and intelligence. He founded a college at Khorasan and built observatories at Baghdad and Cassian, now Damascus, and he succeeded in determining the inclination of the ecliptic, had a degree of the meridian measured on the plain of Shinar, and constructed accurate astronomical tables. He had many books translated into Arabic from the Greek, Persian, and other languages, and drew about him learned men of all creeds. His liberalism ended in his conversion to the faith of the Matasali, who recognized the free will of man and the denied and denied the eternity of the Quran. In the latter years of his reign, he was involved in hostilities with the Greek emperor Theophilus and in revolts in various parts of the Arabian Empire. He died near Tarsus and was succeeded by his brother Matasim, who was the author of Inquiries into the Quran and other books. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, as promised, one of those is Almanac. In fact, that is the 16th entry. So we have Almanac, Almadine, Almansa, Almansur, or Abu Jafar Abdal. Abdallah bin Muhammad al-Mansur, and then Almas. And let's start with Almanac, which is entry number 16. Uh, before I get into the entries, though, um, before I said that not much has really happened, and that's true, um, there are going to be weeks like that, Not there's not going to be much to tell, but I did forget, um, and I don't know why I forgot, but I managed to run up to three quarters of a mile, and last week and I am so so thrilled uh, that I made it up and my feet didn't hurt uh, it felt wonderful uh, even my little puppy was all excited so we ran uh, I ran a mixture of uh, concrete and trail and grass so because I lost the trail and ended up in a field <laughs> um, so but it was fantastic I loved it and I can't wait to get up to a mile I'm hoping that this week I'll be able to if the weather holds up um, I'll be able to get up to a full mile and, and uh, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's that's something that's really exciting for me. Um, and that's pretty much, there's there's uh, not much has happened. Like I said, um, the Teespring store, don't forget, 20% uh, off um, expires April 24th, 2022 with the code MANDY20. So that's MANDY20 for 20% off until April 24th in celebration of spring. Okay, so... Entry number 16 is Almanac, which is a noun, and it is a book or table containing a calendar of the civil divisions of the year, the times of the various astronomical phenomena, the time of sun rising and setting, the changes of the moon, the tides, and other useful or entertaining information. Till a comparatively modern date, this additional matter consisted of astrological predictions and analogous absurdities. It now embraces, in the best almanacs, a wide variety of useful notes and information, chronological, statistical, political, agricultural, etc. I, re I remember, um, I'm going to pause for a second because this is a really long entry. I remember um, growing up, my grandmother um, got the farmer's almanac. And would base when she planted things on that. Um, I haven't seen one in a long time. Uh, if you still read almanacs um, or if they're, they're still in existence, I haven't looked it up. Um, but yeah, if you still use almanacs, let me know. Um, just uh, hit me up at theoaktreejourneys.com. Go to my contact page or just email me directly at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. And let me know if you still use an almanac. Okay, so let's carry on. The Alexandrian Greeks had almanacs. The time at which they first appeared in Europe is not precisely known. The oldest of which copies in manuscript still exist are of the 14th century. Ooh, that's cool. There are specimens in the libraries of the British Museum and of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. 
The earliest European almanac worthy of notice was compiled by the celebrated astronomer Purbeck and appeared between the years 1450 and 1461. That is so neat. But the first printed almanac was that composed of his pupil, and this is a really long name, Regio Montanenus, for the 30 years 1475 to 1506, for which he received a munificent donation from Matthias Carvinus, king of Hungary. Hungary. Bernard de Grenolix of Barcelona commenced the publication of an almanac in 1487, the printer Engel of Vienna in 1491, and Stoffler of Tübingen in 1524. Copies of these are now very rare, which means I want one. Uh, in 1533, Rebellus published at Lyons his almanac for that year and renewed the publication in 1535, 48, and 50. The fame and popularity of the celebrated astrologer Nostradam Nostradamus who prophesied minutely the death of Henry II of France, the execution of Charles I of England, the Great Fire of London, the Restoration, etc., gave such an impulse to the publication of predictions that in 1579 Henry III of France prohibited the insertion of any political prophecies in almanacs. You know, you can't really blame the poor guy. <laughs> you really can't blame him for that. A prohibition renewed by Louis the eighth in sixteen twenty eight before this in the reign of Charles the ninth, a royal ordinance required every almanac to be stamped with the approval of the diocesan bishop so uh now now on, on one hand, whenever I, I joke about you know, you can't really blame him, you know it is a form of censorship and, and i don't I don't really like censorship, most of us don't but but it is kind of funny uh okay, and let's move on. Prophetic almanacs still circulate to an incredible extent in France in the rural districts and among the uneducated. The most popular of all these is the Almanac Liegos, a venerable remnant of superstition. It was first published at Liege, according to the invariable title page, which takes no note of time, in 1636 by one Mathia Landsberg, whose existence, however, at any time seems very problematic. The Almanac Le Leogos is a most convenient one for those who are unable to read, for by certain symbols attached to certain dates, the most unlettered persons can follow its instructions. Thus, the rude representation of a field announces the proper phase of the moon under which a drought of medicine should be taken, a pillbox designates the planet most prop propitious for pills, a pair of scissors points out the proper period for cutting hair, a lancet for letting blood... Of course, amid innumerable predictions, some may naturally be expected to come to pass. So in 1774, this almanac pre predicted that in the April of that year, a royal favorite would play her last part. Madame Dubarry took the prediction to herself and repeatedly exclaimed, I wish this villainous month of April were over. In May, Louis XV died, and Madame Dubarry's last part was really played. The credit of old Mathia was established more firmly than ever. In 1852, a number of commissioners appointed by the Minister of Police, having examined between 7,000 and 8,000 of the national chapbooks, which included a great number of almanacs, pronounced them deleterious, and their circulation was forcibly checked. In England, so far was any restraint from being put upon the publication of prophetic almanacs, or prognostications, as they were usually called, that the royal Letters patent gave a monopoly of the trade to the two universities and the stationer's company, under whose patronage and with the imprimatur of the Archbishop of Canterbury, such productions as Moore's Almanac and Poor Robin's Almanac flourished vigorously. So it sounds more like about money than anything else. Although, quote, it would be difficult to find, and in so small a compass, an equal quantity of ignorance Gassy and imposture as was condensed in these publications, end quote. The memory of Partridge, long employed as the prophet of, the, of Swift, writing under, oh, I'm sorry, long employed as the prophet of the stationer's company, is preserved in the lively diatribe, diatribe of Swift, writing under the name of Bickerstaff. In 1775, a decision of the Court of Common Pleas abolished the monopoly of the stationer's company. However, it was not until the publication in 1828 of the British Almanac 
by the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge that the eyes of the English public became opened to the deleterious nature of the almanacs in vogue. The British Almanac is itself now published by the Stationer's Company. Whitaker's Almanac is a valuable compendium. In Scotland, the earliest almanacs seem to have been produced about the beginning of the 16th century. About 1677, the almanacs or prognostations published at Aberdeen had an annual circulation of 50,000 copies. In 1683 appeared Edinburgh's True Almanac, or a new prognostication. The Edinburgh Almanac made gradual improvement, and since 1837, it has been published as Oliver and Boyd's New Edinburgh Almanac, and now contains more than 1,000 pages, giving complete an amount of information on all public matters, especially for North Britain. Of equal value for Ireland is Tom's Irish Almanac. Of important national almanacs are the French Almanac Imperial, begun 1679, the Belgian Royal Almanac, and the Prussian Royal Almanac. The Almanac de Gotha, begun 1763, has a cosmopolitan character. See Gotha, comma, Almanac de. The most important astronomical almanac in Britain is the Nautical Almanac, first published with the authority of government in 1767 and appearing in a new series in 1834. The French Connaissance de Temps began 1679 by Picard and now published under the authority of the Bureau des Longitudes in, is in the plan similar to the nautical almanac, but with a larger number of original memoirs, many of great value. Equally celebrated is the Berlin Ephemeris, long under the superintendence of Professor Inc. Another kind of almanac, very numerous in Germany, France, and Britain, belongs rather to the class of annuals in the interest of parties, politics, or religious, or for advertising purposes. Bradford's Press, Philadelphia, is believed to have issued the first common almanac in the United States in 1687. Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac began in 1732 and continued by him about 25 years, had wide reputation for wise and witty sayings. The American Almanac and Repository of Useful Knowledge, Boston, 1828 to 1861, was continued two years from 1863 to 1864 as the National Almanac, Volume 1 of the American Nautical Almanac, begun by Charles Henry Davis, U.S. Navy, appeared 1853. A very valuable work was begun 1878 by A.R. Spofford, Librarian of Congress, with the title American Almanac and Treasury of Facts, Statistical, Financial, and Political. The Whig began the series of political almanacs, now continued in the Tribune Almanac, Several great journals, most religious denominations, and many trades and professions issue almanacs or yearbooks of great utility for general information or in their special departments. The almanacs of patent medicine dealers are numerous and conspicuous. Almanac is also the term applied by antiquaries to calendars found carved, usually on staves, but also on tablets of wood, scabbards of swords, handles of hatchets, etc. The inscribed characters are sometimes the runic, hence the name of runestaffs, Scipion's Runicae, and sometimes the Gothic. The saints' days are denoted by symbols as a pair of shoes for St. Crispin's Day. These primitive almanacs were in use among the Scandinavian people. That's really neat. I did not know that that's what runestaffs came from. <clears throat> oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, so entry number 17, Almadine, noun, a lapidary's term for the violet or violet-red varieties of spinal, ruby, etc. The precious or oriental garnet. And number 18. Almansa, which is a town of Murcia, Spain, province of Albeca, 43 miles east by south from Albeca in the, on the Madrid and Alcinti Railway. Railway. It is on a wide plain which is irrigated and very fertile. It has manufacturers, population is 8,736, near, near it is the French, under the Duke of Berwick, gained a victory in 1707 in the War of the Spanish Succession. Okay, and number 19 is Al-Mansur, or Abu Jafir Abdallah bin Muhammad el-Mansur, and the name is actually longer than the entry. Um, I say that in jest, uh, but, but yeah. So it mean, his name means helped by God. So Al-Mansur means helped by God. He was the second caliph of the house of the Abbasids. He reigned from 754 to 775, 
Warfare, treachery, and murder were his steps to the throne, and his whole rule was cruel. If you remember uh, the Abbasids, and we did, uh, that was in the ABs, if, you're, if you recall, uh, it was not a very peaceful time most of the time. And nevertheless, he was a liberal patron of learning. He especially persecuted the Christians in Syria and Egypt. So remember, we, we talked about that too last time. In war against external foes, he had but little success. He removed the seat of the caliphate from Kufa to Baghdad, which he built in immense, at immense cost, raising the money by oppressive taxation. He introduced the pernicious custom of making his freed slaves, mostly foreigners, rulers of provinces. He died in his 63rd year. So he, he wow. So someone who's that violent died at 63. Uh, surprised it wasn't sooner, but no. Number 20, Almish. Almish, it is a town of the Austrian Empire in Hungary, 60 miles west of Maria Theresopol. The inhabitants are almost all Roman Catholics, population 8,193. Almish is the name of many small towns and villages in Hungary. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. I had to grab some coffee real quick. Our next set of five entries are Alma Tadima, Lawrence, Alma Tadima, Miss Lawrence, Almeida, Don Francesco, Dave, Almeria, and Almighty. Okay, so let's start with Alma Tadima, Lawrence, and that's spelled A A, -A <laughs> L A W. Uh, the next Lawrence will be L A U. And to get the full spellings of all these, go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and select Encyclopedia Challenge, or follow the link in the link, not link, but link in the description below. Okay, so we have Lawrence Alma Tadima. He was a Dutch and English artist, born Drawn Rip, Netherlands, in 1836 on January the 8th. Looking first to the profession of medicine, he turned to fine art in 1852 studying at the Antwerp Academy and afterward under Baron Henry Lees. In 1873, he made England his residence and was naturalized as a British subject. His works are mostly classical in theme, and his early study of the art and archaeology of Rome, Greece, and Egypt prepared him for faithful treatment of his subjects, which he elaborates with great care in composition and drawing, as well as with high finish and chaste beauty of coloring. Among his paintings are Entrance to a Roman Theater in 1866, Tarquinius Superbus, 1867, A Roman Amateur, 1868, Peric Dance, 1869, The Vintage, 1870, A Roman Emperor, 1871, The Mummy, 1872, A Picture Gallery, 1874, After the Dance, 1876, The Seasons, 1877, a Sculptor's Model, 1879, The Way to the Temple, 1883, The Emperor Hadrian Visiting a British Pottery, 1884, The Women of Amphissa, 1887, Clothilde at the Tomb of Her Grandchildren, 1858, The Education of the Children of Clovis, 1861, How the Egyptians Amused Themselves 3,000 Years Ago, 1864, The Juggler, 1870, Unconscious Rivals, the Roses of Heliogabalus, 1888, The Spring, 1894, The Conversion of Paula, 1898, Therma Antonia, 1899, and in 1876 he produced a notable trio of pictures, architecture, sculpture, and painting. Frequent exhibitions of his work have been given. In portraits he has excelled, though giving less time to, his, to this branch of art. He was elected Associate Royal Artist in 1876 and to full membership in 1879, and he has received decorations from the principal European governments. Some of his best works are owned in the United States, belonging to private or public collections, and examples are seen occasionally in the art stores of the principal cities. They are quiet in character, and this, together with the fine drawing, drapery, and modeling, is in the spirit of sculpture. He was knighted in 1899, and since there is no date of death, um, he was still alive when this was written. So that's pretty cool. Okay, and entry number 22 
is Alma Tadima, comma, Miss Lawrence, or Miss Lawrence Alma Tadima. She was an English novelist, born in England. She is the second daughter of the noted artist. So, so she was probably uh, named after her father, so Lawrence Alma Tadima, which we just read about, and has published Love's Martyr, The Wings of Icarus, The Crucifix, A Collection of Tales, Realms of Unknown Night, Unknown Knights, Unknown Kings, A Book of Verse, The Fate Spinner in 1900, The Unseen Hellsman in 1901, The Herb of Grace Essays, 1901-1902, Songs of Womanhood Poems, 1903, Four Plays in 1905. Well, that's pretty cool. And our 23rd entry is Almeida, Don Francesco de, or Don Francesco de Almeida, Almeida, he was a famous Portuguese warrior in the latter. So we went from artist to writer, now to warrior, covering all of our bases here. <laughs> so he was a Portuguese warrior in the latter part of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, seventh son of the Count of Abrantes. At an early period, he distinguished himself in the wars with the Moors, but especially at the conquest of Granada in 1492. In 1505, his sovereign Emmanuel I, in consideration of his great abilities, appointed him viceroy of the Portuguese possessions in the East Indies. March 25th, he set sail from Lisbon with a fleet of 36 vessels containing 1,500 men, many of whom were noblemen and all of good family. July 22nd, he reached Kualawa on the Mozambique coast, where he was soon involved in a quarrel with the king of that city, the result of which was that he deprived him, him of his crown, built a fortress to overawe the inhabitants, and proceeding to Zanzibar, destroyed the town of Mombasa. He then sailed for the Indies, asserting everywhere the superiority of the Portuguese flag. At Kenanor, Cochin, Colon, Ceylon, and Sumatra, he either built fortresses to protect the factories and commercial interests of his nation, or established new factories. With the king of Malacca, a commercial treaty was formed about the same time. His son, Lorenzo, carried on several expeditions as his father's lieutenant, visited Ceylon, and discovered the Maldive Islands and Madagascar. Ooh, Madagascar. I like Madagascar vanilla. The chief design of Almeida was to make the Portuguese sole masters of the Indian seas, and by blockading the Persian and Arabian Gulfs to exclude the Egyptians and Venetians from commerce with the East. To frustrate his endeavors, the Egyptian sultan fitted out, by the help of the Venetians, a large fleet which, under the command of the Persian Mir Hakam or Hosin, according to others, was sent to the assistance of the king of Cal Calicut. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. Anytime you try to weasel your way into something and exclude others uh, with trade, stuff like this happens. Uh, there's a story of a, of a road in North Carolina that stretches through, I think, a couple of states, um, that Tennessee wanted it. Um, and they didn't, They wanted to exclude North Carolina. Well, Tennessee didn't get it, and North Carolina did. And I can't remember the name of the road right now. This uh, Reading this just kind of reminded me of it. But it was, you know, they were, Tennessee, my, and, and I'm from Tennessee. You know, Tennessee is a great state, but, you know, sometimes selfishness, causes you to lose everything. So he should have known better. In the port of Chal, young Lorenzo was attacked in very disadvantageous circumstances by Mir Hakam. He fought with astonishing bravery. His ships had nearly made their escape out to the open sea when his own ship was separated from the others and struck upon a rock. One chance shot carried off one of his legs and another tearing away part of his side killed him. His father speedily took measures to revenge the death of his son upon the hated Muslims when Alfonso de Albuquerque appeared on the scene in 1507, having been sent out by the Portuguese government to supersede Almeida, whom it had begun to distrust, distrust on account of his brilliant successes. The latter refused to recognize Albuquerque as viceroy and for some months kept him prisoner at Cochin. He now sailed along the coasts, burning and plundering various seaports, amongst others Goa, and at length utterly, utterly destroyed the Egyptian fleet at Dewey. From this fierce and avenging expedition, he returned to Cochin, resigned his office into the hands of his, of his successor, 
and set out on his homeward voyage in 1508, November 13th, but was slain in an obscure affray with the savages at Cape Saldanhaw in the south of Africa where his men had landed. He was a man of stern, vigorous, and yet impulsive character. I understand impulsivity. Um, I was impulsive a few days ago because I got excited about something, and I'm um, not sure yet how that's going to turn out. Um, uh, pray that it turns out positive and very well. And uh, But anyway, this this is... It didn't turn out very well for him, did it? Um, my impulsivity was not to burn anything. It's more of the of a more positive nature than that. Um, capable of severe retaliation of injuries, but not destitute of clemency and generosity. So he did have some good characteristics about him. All right, so let's move on to number 24, Almeria. And it's anciently, anciently Mergus or Portus Magnus, chief town in the Spanish province of the same name in the mouth of the river Almeria. It has a well-defended harbor, a cathedral, besides 26 churches and monasteries, and a grammar school. In the time of the Moors, it was, next to Granada, the richest and most important town in the kingdom, and flourished alike in arts, industry, and commerce, being the great... I think that's port. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with port. Half that is faded out. So we'll say great port of traffic with Italy and the east. At one time, it was as terrible a nest of pirates as Algiers itself under the Moorish chief Ibn Maimon, when even Granada, according to the proverb, was merely its farm. Now it has only a few unimportant manufacturers, though it still keeps up considerable trade in cochineal, red silk, lead, grapes, and especially wine. The cotton tree has been planted in the environs of Almeria by English merchants. Population in 1900 was 47,326. And entry number 25 before break is Almighty. Almighty, possessing all power, omnipotent noun, the omnipotent God, almightily, almightiness. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Uh, during break, I quickly looked up um, the road that uh, I was telling you about, and it was Blue Ridge Parkway. Uh, it is the largest or longest linear park, and it goes from 469 miles, um, and it goes through Virginia and North Carolina. So it's beautiful. If you've never been on the Blue Ridge Parkway, you should totally do it. Uh, just take a drive up. You can drive up the whole thing. There are trails. I've been on the trails I haven't driven the entire length of it, uh, but that actually might be something fun to do. Uh, but yeah, Tennessee lost out on that because they were trying to make a side deal, like, let's don't let it skirt through North Carolina at all. And it would have actually gone through from Virginia through North Carolina and Tennessee. So we missed out on all of it because of, of that. So that's just an important lesson. And he... Um, lost out, uh, Don Francisco de Almeida lost out on, well, he lost his son um, because of that. And then also his viceroy ship. So anyway, let's move on to the last five entries. Uh, we have Almadavar del Campo, Almahades, or Hades, Almahades, Almacana, Almond, and Almonds, comma, Fixed Oil Of. So, number 26, Almodovar del Campo, town of Newcastle, Spain, province of Ciudad Real, 22 miles southwest from Ciudad Real. It stands on the summit of a ridge near the Vega, a branch of the Guadimia. The streets are passably clean but ill-paved. There are ruins of an ancient castle. Ooh, castles. The inhabitants are chiefly employed in agriculture and the only manufacturers are domestic. Population, remember this is early 1900s, 10,360. And number 27, Almohads, name of a dynasty that ruled in Africa and Spain during the 12th and 13th century. The word is Arabic and signifies Unitarians. It was taken as a term of distinction for the Almohad. Is it? That's, yeah, Al <laughs> I keep 
wanting to pronounce it different ways because it's spelled so oddly. Almohads considered themselves the only Mohemians who worshipped God properly. The founder of this sect, which at first was religious rather than political, was called Muhammad ibn Tumurt, a native of the Atlas region. He was a man of a bold and subtle intellect and extremely ambitious. He had traveled much and acquired manifold knowledge and experience. His first measures were extremely prudent. He commenced preaching with great zeal and reformation of all abuses, affecting, affecting, affecting himself an austere and unselfish life. He went about covered with rags, prohibiting wine, music, and all pleasures. At first, his denunciations were generally held in contempt. But at length, his partisans became so numerous that Ali, king of Morocco, was compelled to take measures against him. It was, however, too late. The Arabs and Berbers flocked to his standard, and at the end of a few years, he was master of the provinces of Fez, Morocco, Themis, Oran, and Tunis. Muhammad imposed on his disciples new ceremonies and composed for their benefit a special treatise entitled On the Uni Unity of God. The Almohads extended their conquests into Spain, subjugating Andalusia, Granada, Valencia, and a part of Aragon, and Portugal as far as the Ebro and Tagus. Muhammad was succeeded in his authority by Abdel Mumin, who had formerly been his lieutenant. Under him and his descendants, Jusuf and Jacob, the di dynasty of Almohads continued to flourish in great splendor, but in 1212 they were completely defeated by the Spaniards in the famous Battle of Tolosa, the result of which was a general revolt of the Christian provinces under their sway. The power of the Almohads was destroyed in Spain in 1257 and in Africa in 1269. And number 28, Almacana or Mokina. So Almacana or Mokina, it just says, See Mohammedan sects, Hakim bin Allah. And number 29 is Almond. And we are going to find out all about, we're, we're going to learn all about almonds. In anything you thought you didn't need to know, you're getting ready to find out. So almond, noun, a genus of the natural order Rosacea, suborder Amygdalea or Drupaca, consisting of trees or shrubs distinguished by the coarsely furrowed and wrinkled shell of the droop and by the young leaves being condupli, oh, Conduplicate or having their sides folded together. According to the greater number of botanists, it includes the peach, constituted by some into a distinct genus, Persica, in which the droop has a fleshy covering, whereas in the species to which the name almond is commonly given, this part is a dry, fibrous husk, which shrivels as the fruit ripens and finally opens of its own accord. The common almond tree is very similar to the peach tree and is distinguished from it principally Besides the difference of the fruit, by the fine glandulous serratures of the leaves, the stalk of which equals or even ex exceeds in length the breadth of the blade. It is a tree about 20 to 30 feet high, a native of East and of Africa, but has now become completely wild in the whole south of Europe. Even in the more northern parts of Germany and of Britain, it is planted for the sake of its beautiful flowers, which are produced in great abundance and resemble those of the peach in form and often in color, although generally paler and sometimes white. The blossoms appear before the leaves and are very or ornamental in shrubberies in March and April. And even when frost destroys the germ of the fruit, the brilliancy of the flower is not impaired. The wood is used by cabinet makers, but the almond is valued principally for the kernel of its fruit, known as almonds, forming an important article of commerce and largely cultivated in South Europe and similar climates. It has been cultivated from early times. In the first half of the 16th century, it was introduced into England, but except in the south part, is not valuable for fruit. In the U.S., more than 600,000 almond trees, in addition to those producing fruit for home use, were in bearing in 1890. The hardshell almond is hardy well, but the thin shell, which is the almond of commerce, though very successful in... I don't know if it's California. Uh, seldom thrives east of the Rocky Mountains. So yeah, that must be California. The almond is propagated best by budding upon seedling almond stalks, but peach and even apricot stalks are sometimes used. Sweet almonds contain a large quantity of a very bland fixed oil, emulsion gum, and mucilage sugar. 
are of a very agreeable taste and very nutritious and are also used in the dessert and confectionery and medicinally in an emulsion, which forms a pleasant, cooling, diluent drink. Bitter almonds contain the same substances in in addition, a substance called amygdalin, from which is obtained a peculiar volatile oil. For the oils derived from almonds, see the following articles. The muddy water of the Nile is clarified by rubbing bitter almonds on the sides of the water vessels in the same way in which the nuts of the Strachanus pitotarium, sea clearing nut, are used in India. That's neat. The principal varieties of almond in cultivation are the common sweet almond with thick hard shell, the brittle shelled with a very thin, almost leathery brittle shell, and sweet kernels, the bitter almond with thick hard shell, sometimes also with a brittle shell, and bitter kernels, the large fruited with large flowers of a white, whitish rose color and very large sweet fruit, the small fruited with very small fruit and sweet, and the peach almond with a slightly succulent blackish sarcocarp, yellow shell, and sweet kernels. The sarcocarp is in the different varieties more or less dry or somewhat fleshy and juicy, so that some authors have disputed even the specific distinction between the almond and the peach. In commerce, the long almonds of Malaga, known as Jordan almonds, and the broad almonds of Valencia are most valued. Large quantities of almonds are annually imported into Britain and America from France, Spain, Italy, and the Levant. Bitter almonds are brought chiefly from Lagador. The dwarf almond is very similar to the common almond, except that it is a low shrub, seldom more than two or three feet in height. Its fruit is also similar, but much smaller. It is common in the plains of the south of Russia and is frequently planted as an ornamental shrub in the U.S., flowering freely in March and April, but not producing fruit. It is very beautiful when covered with its pink flowers in spring and deserves to be more frequently planted than it is. A a sheltered but sunny situation is favorable to it. Other species, little known, but very similar to these, are found in the east and one on arid hills in Mexico. Almonds, noun plural, two glands situated on each side of the mouth near the base of the tongue, the tonsils. Okay, and number 30, or our last entry uh, before we end this week, so uh, is almonds, comma, fixed oil of, or fixed oil of almonds. A fixed greasy oil exuding from almonds under pressure, either bitter or sweet almonds may be employed, but the former are generally used as they are cheaper than the sweet almonds and the expressed cake is valuable in the preparation of the essential oil. One CWT of the almonds generally yields 48 to 52 pounds of the fixed oil. When first obtained, it possesses a turbid or milky appearance, but when allowed to stand at rest, the impurities settle and a clear light yellow oil remains above. It has a specific gravity of 920 and solidifies when reduced to 13 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm wondering if that's negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit. It has no odor and to a taste is truly oleaginous and bland. The fixed oil of almond is used in medicine and possesses a mild laxative property when administered in large doses. It is often given to newly born infants mixed with syrup of violets or syrup of roses. It is beneficial also in allaying troublesome coughs when administered with confection of roses and syrup of poppies. So that is it. That is all 30 words for this week. Pat yourself on the back uh, for sticking through. Uh, Next week we will start um, with almonds, volatile oil or essential oil of. So that's where we will begin next week. And uh, before I let you go though, and uh, get to your day just want to remind you uh, that today is spring forward so so if you forgot to do that in your car or, or anything anywhere like that no cell phones and computers usually do that automatically but uh, if you forgot to uh, update your car go ahead and do that or do it at a stoplight if it's really easy mine's just a button and my pin anything I put in the, the top where it is it, it messes with the time so it's always wrong and don't forget my Teespring store. Um, I do have 20% off uh, in celebration of spring. It expires April 24th of this year. And to get 20% off, you have to use the code MANDY20. And the link for my Teespring store is in the description below. Uh, but uh, it is 
I'll go ahead and tell you what it is just in case you can't get to it, but it's the-oak-tree-journeys.creator-spring.com. So it's basically the Oak Tree Journeys, um, but there's little dashes in between each word. And that was, uh, the Teespring store did that. And also, oh, I almost forgot, if you have a word that you just don't like, that you just cannot stand, um, I've gotten one so far, uh, so if you have, have a word that you just, just abhor, uh, let me know. Let me know what that word is and why you abhor it, and if I get enough words, uh, I will do a bonus on words that we just don't like or words that we abhor, abhor, <laughs> And uh, just uh, email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or you can contact me at my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and select the contact page. And one more thing before we go, uh, just to end with the quote of the month by Jean Paul Richter, the German humorist. Stately spring whose rope folds are valleys, whose breast bouquet is gardens, and whose blush in a vernal evening so with that, I hope you have a blessed week and I bid you adieu.